Hear the word of the Lord from Micah 5, 1 through 5, and Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifice and sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of the Lord. This is the, the fourth and final Sunday of the season of Advent. And what we've been doing here is we've been going, um, taking this sermon series to look through at the themes of Advent, which is represented by each one of these candles. There's uh, the first week, hope. There's love, joy, and this week we're going to be talking about peace, which is the fourth um, theme of Advent season. But we've got to ask the question, what, what is peace? And I think that if you were to ask anybody off the street, what is peace, I think this would probably be the common answer. Well, well peace is just an absence of conflict, right? It's, it's when there's no turmoil, it's when everything's kind of calm, but as we look at the Bible, it's, it's much more than just an absence of conflict. Peace is, the biblical view of peace is much bigger than that. And the Bible describes it, peace in a way which leads Bible scholars to say it like this, to define peace in this way. Peace is the total well-being, prosperity, and security associated with God's presence among his people. And in the Old Testament, peace is called Shalom, which is, which is this idea of wholeness, completeness, where everything is working together perfectly for the good of everything. Everything is flourishing in every area of life and in the world. There's nothing but life and flourishing. This is the idea of peace that the Bible gives us. Now, this might seem kind of like an abstract thought to us, this idea of peace. It's, it's kind of a big concept. It's, it's an ideal. Uh, and it's nice, right, to have peace would be nice, but it just seems so far out of our grasp. It's something that we can't really grab onto. It'd be nice to live in a world with no wars, but we live in a time where billions and billions of dollars are spent in military and on national security. It would be nice to be married to a person who, who, who understands you completely, that they always knows that you're, you're for, uh, always, always knows you at your best, always gets along with you. But many of us on the way in 
experienced maybe a disagreement or an argument. Moms, we think it'd be nice to live in a time where we could sleep through the night, right? But still we're woken up by our children crying, needing comfort. And as the holiday approaches, we're reminded that our families are more like torn war zones than they are peaceful areas. And these are just a a few snapshots of the chaos that surrounds us in this world. And, And what this exposes is there's a problem we don't just like peace in a, in a way where we can take it or leave it. Like, we have to have it. We desire peace. We crave it. We're in constant pursuit of it. And in a sense, we cannot be happy unless we have peace. And so we do whatever we can to find peace, right? Maybe, maybe it means stepping away from a few relationships. Maybe it means finding a new job because the setting that we work in is just too chaotic. Maybe it means moving to a new neighborhood. But no matter what we do to find peace, it never lasts. It is always interrupted. So then there's this question, the big question, the million-dollar question. How do I find lasting peace? How does all the chaos in my life get turned into peacefulness? And that's the question that we're going to spend this morning trying to answer. And I believe the Bible does answer this. But on the way to answer that question, there's, there's two other things that, that we're going to identify. One, we're going to, we're going to trace down where our desire for peace came from. And as we do that, we're also going to find what's preventing us from having peace. What is the barrier that prevents us from, from having peace? So let's start out. Let's look at this origin of peace. Where does this desire for peace come from? Because all desires that we have come from someplace. They don't just appear out of nowhere. They they, they have an origin. Now, I can remember when I was in elementary school, uh, we we got called together in the gymnasium for uh, a school assembly. The high school jazz band was going to come in, and they were going to play a couple of jazz songs for us. And I remember sitting there on the floor, and the band starts playing, and I just remember that first experience I ever had with with jazz music. I remember feeling the bass, just the pulse of it rocking my chest. I remember the drum as he rode on the ride cymbal. I feel it in my feet. I remember the wall of sound that the horns had. And at that moment, there was something in me that, that was like, I have to have this. Like, I have to be part of this in some way, shape, or form. And so this, this desire to be a jazz musician, to, to be part of a music ensemble like that, developed and grew. And, and actually, I, I followed through on that desire because of that one experience I had when I was in elementary school. And so I think that we all have experiences like this where we, we experience one thing that leads us to desire it to an even greater extent, whether it be um, in politics and athletics in literature, in relationships. These are just a few areas where we have that. We, we have an experience which leads to a desire that we need to fulfill. But all of us have this desire at the core of our being for peace, for tranquility and harmony. We desire for every aspect of our lives to be marked by peace. We want to be in a world without war. We want to live around people who we have a thriving relationship with. We want our work to be enjoyable. We don't want it to be burdensome. 
We want to live healthy lives. We want this inner peace that tells us that we're loved and we're accepted. We want every single area of our life to have this mark of peace. But we've never experienced complete and total peace. Never once in our life. We cannot trace this desire down to our experience here in this lifetime. Why is that, though? Where, where did that desire come from? Why do you think you desire total and complete peace so badly, even though you've never experienced it? In us is this faint and unrelenting desire for things to be different than the way they are. Because we've discovered in this world that nothing here can satisfy that craving for complete and total peace. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, he said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. What Lewis is saying here is that these desires that we have for complete and total peace, though they cannot be found here in this world, these, these desires are not wrong. They're not misguided. These desires are true. They are, they're valid and credible. Now, this is one of the things that makes atheism, evolution, the Big Bang, this, this is one of those things that, that isn't congruent, how our desire for peace isn't congruent with this worldview. Because for us to desire peace is antithetical to the survival of the fittest. If, if it is the strong who conquer and impose their will on the weak, there's no peace for the weak. If it's the big animals that eat the ant, little animals to survive, there will never be peace for those smaller animals. They'll always be threatened. Now, if this is the world, way the world was meant to, to be, then our desires are misplaced, but... And it's, and it's incompatible with this world. But the Bible tells us a different story. The Bible tells us a story where these desires are validated and make sense of our innate desire for peace. And just like Lewis, the Bible tells us that we were made for another world. It tells us that the world in its current state was not designed for us to dwell in. It's not the world God designed for us. And if you go back to Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, which means beginnings or origin, we see all about the starting place that God had for man. We see God creates everything out of nothing. In the middle, and in the middle of this creation, he creates, he, he plants this garden. It's, it's, it's a beautiful garden. Words, honestly, all of the words that I try to use to explain it are going to fall flat. Even, even as we have the internet where we can go and see beautiful places, all of those places in this world pale in comparison to the beauty of the Garden of Eden, where there's beautiful trees and flowers. These plants produce delicious food, lush. Everything is full of life. There's clean rivers. The air is crisp and fresh. Animals get along with each other. No, there are no animals uh, running the threat of being someone else's lunch. Weather is perfect, always sunny with a high of 75, slight breeze. There's never a shortage of food, nor is there a threat of natural disaster. Everything in this garden is beautiful. It's serene. 
And this was God's perfect place for man to, to dwell. And so God, from the dust, creates Adam, and from Adam he creates Eve, and he places them in the garden together. And it's here in this context, here in this beautiful garden, where man and wife flourish. They thrive. They love each other. They satisfy one another. They're, they're, they're deep, true friends. Their relationships is, is perfect. There's no conflict. There's no strife. They literally have the perfect marriage. And God gives them a responsibility. He, he tells them to tend to the garden. He says, I want you to take care of this garden. I want you to make sure that it continues to flourish the way that I designed it to. And so this work that God's give them, it's not draining. It's not taxing. This is enjoyable work. This is rejuvenating. It's rewarding work. At the end of the day, they don't come home and, and crash on the couch like every ounce of energy has been stolen from them. They come home and it's like, you will not believe what I learned today. You would not believe what God has taught me through his creation. And to top it all off, this whole picture of serenity and peace and tranquility, God is there in the garden with Adam and Eve. He's right there. He's like a good friend who walks with them in the cool of the day. And this relationship between God and his creation is marked by peace and unity. Adam and Eve knew for a fact that God loved them and cared for them. There was never a doubt of this in the garden. This, this place of Eden was complete perfection. It was whole and complete. Everything was working together for the good of everything else. It was healthy and growing. There was never a trace of sickness or decay. There was never conflict or strife. Everything was harmonious. Everything was perfect. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. There was security and comfort in the presence of God. And this is, this is the picture of shalom, of peace, that the Bible creates. And so it's in this context, here in the garden, where man was meant to live and to flourish forever. There was meant to be peace between nations. Actually, there was never supposed to be nations. It was supposed to be one nation, God's people. From creature to creature, there would be peace where lions and deer could entertain the same space. Humans would never experience disruption or pain or sickness or sorrow. And most significantly, people would always be secure knowing that God's presence was with them. The garden, this place that God made, was meant to be our home. This is the place that we were meant to live, to dwell in, to be in perfect peace with God, with creation, with one another. This, this place, Eden, is a place where our desi desires come from. In us, deep down in the fabric of our, our being, is a distant memory of what Eden was like that yearns for this place. Right? This explains why we're so discontent with the way things the world work right now. Right? This is why we don't like violence. We don't like th terrorist threats. We don't like relationship conflicts. It's because we were 
made for a place that's more suitable for us. We're homesick for heaven. That's what that longing, that desire is within us. We're homesick for heaven. We crave peace because we were made for it. And we're homesick until we have it. Now, if you take that picture of Eden, the beauty of it, the, the harmoniousness of it, the, the, the tranquility, the peace, the shalom that's there, and you contrast that to the world that we live in, it's very clear that things don't match up. All right, I don't have to work very hard to prove this. All we need to do is just look at this week's headlines. Earlier this week, a school in L.A. was closed down because of bomb threats. Terrorist threats keep popping up everywhere. And, and just yesterday, there was uh, a young man, a teenager in, in Tennessee, who, who jumped in front of bullets in order to save three young women's lives because of gang violence. This is the type of world that we live in. But what happened? Why did things pan out this way? What caused the world to be like it is? What prevents us from having peace? Go back to the garden here. God, God gave Adam and Eve the garden to tend to, and he said, every, every plant in the garden is good for food. It's going to be delicious food, except for I want you to stay away from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, this, this one tree is off limits, and if you eat from it, you're going to die. Now, what God is saying here is that as long as you don't eat from this one tree that I'm, I'm barring you from, everything will continue in shalom. Peace will be forever. It'll be uninterrupted. But if you eat from this tree, shalom will disappear. Peace will start to fade away. And sure enough, as they were tempted by Satan, Adam and Eve ate from this tree. And as soon as they veered from living uh, according to God's ways to living, to living life their own ways, shalom, the shalom of the garden started to disappear. No longer are they secure in the garden. They felt vulnerable. They felt exposed. They realized they were naked, and so they hid themselves. They covered up. When they heard God coming for his walk in the cool of the day, they hid. They were afraid. They were ashamed. And this marks this strained relationship between God and man, that, that things are no longer the way they once were. There would no longer be these walks in the cool of the day with God and his people. And rather than unity with God, they felt distant and removed from him. They felt the brokenness of that relationship. They were made to be close to God, and here they are apart from him. And then with that, with, with the brokenness in the relationship God, with God, came a brokenness in relationship with one another, where Adam and Eve, their perfect marriage, just disappeared like that. God asked Adam what happened. Why, why did... They eat from the tree, and, and, and Adam, what he said is, you know what? That woman, it was her fault, I promise you. It was all her fault. And then he started thinking about it. But you know what? If I recall, God, you were the one who gave me this woman in the first place. So really, her fault, your fault. So, I, so Adam starts passing the blame, right? There's conflict in that. Can you imagine the argument that would follow 
after God, or after God and Adam talk about whose fault it is and Adam blames his wife, right? This guy's sleeping out on the couch tonight. And so relationships with one another from here on out will be tainted by distrust and conflict. It started the new era of marriage counseling. And even the ground was cursed. Not only is, is man and God in broken relationship, man and man have broken relationships, strained relationship, but now the ground, the environment that he's in is going to become burdensome. Flowers, the, the beautiful flowers that Eve would pick and put in her hair now have thorns. Animals start eating other animals. Natural disasters set in. The work that Adam and Eve have is now burdensome. It's no longer rewarding. It's no longer exciting. It's no longer rejuvenating. It's taxing. It's unfulfilling. The shalom that they once knew in Eden has been destroyed. And they were removed, Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. And things only get worse from here. If you follow through Genesis, follow through the Old Testament, we'll see that this conflict and insecurity that, that Adam and Eve once experienced morphs into violence. That only one generation later would we see the first murder in the history of man. Nation eventually would rise up against nation, wars, famines, oppression, genocide, all of these terrible things set in. And the reason for this, the reason why Adam and Eve no longer have peace is this. What was preventing them from having peace was their inability to live according to God's ways, the inability or unwillingness to live according to God's ways. Right? This is the thing that stands in the way of us having peace. Now, if you fast forward a few thousand years, we'll come to this prophet Messiah where we'll finally jump into our text, who, like us in our time, Messiah, uh, uh, Messiah Micah is very familiar with the dysfunction of this world. He lives in a very chaotic time where the nation that he's part of has actually been divided into two. So conflict has arose so, so greatly that the, that the one nation has split into two. They're in turmoil internally, but they're also in turmoil with countries around them. And what Micah is prophesying is that one day there's going to be countries that come in and they conquer them. And what Micah says in his, um, in his book in, in the Old Testament is the reason for these terrible, ha terrible things happening is because God's people have been unfaithful and have failed to live according to God's ways. In chapter 1, verse 5, this is what he says. He's, he's, he's about to lay out all the, all the bad things that are going to happen to God's people. And he says, all of this, all of these things that are going to happen is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Micah says the reason why this lack of shalom is around them, the chaos surrounds them, is the same reason why Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden, that they failed to live according to God's ways, that they had disrupted the peace. But in the midst of of God's people's unfaithfulness in the midst of this chaos and turmoil, God makes these people a promise. Let's take a look at Micah um, 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. God is telling his people, he's promising them that there's a ruler who's going to come. He's going to come from Bethlehem, but he isn't really from Bethlehem. He's from the way back. He's from back in the garden, the way, way back. He says this ruler is going to do something. He's going to do something incredible. Look at verses 4 and 5. This is what he does. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. That's God's people. And he'll do this in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they, God's people, shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. God is promising his people that one day they will have peace again. No more war, no no more conflict, no more threats of other countries coming in and, and conquering you. You'll be able to dwell securely. You'll be restored back to the shalom that you long for. Now, Micah paints a picture of this back in chapter four. This is what he says. This is, just imagine this. And remember, this is the time where where there's all kinds of violence around them. There's wars happening and, and disputes about whose land is what land. Armies are squaring up against armies. And this is what Micah says. He says, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Do you see what's happening here? You see this picture that God's painting through Micah? He's talking about a day when weapons will become gardening tools. A day where there's no more war. A day where the garden is coming back. Right? A time where there's no weapons. There's no need for weapons. There's no need for a concealed carry permit. There's no threats of violence around us. What God's saying is that one day the garden is coming back. And Isaiah, who is a contemporary of Micah, says similar things about this ruler and, and this peace that he brings with him. He says, that one day the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf with the lion and the fattened calf together. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the den of the, co- the, the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This is the picture of the garden that God is painting for his people. One day these things will come true. This is the direction that things are headed under the new leader. But the question is this, who is this new leader? Who is this man to come from Bethlehem? Who's going to be this great shepherd? Who will bring this peace? Who will be this peace? And what the Bible tells us as we read it from cover to cover is that this man, this ruler, this good shepherd, this one who comes from Bethlehem is Jesus. 
that Jesus is the one who will be their peace. How? That's the next question. How? How will Jesus be our peace? How will he take us back to the garden? How will this cosmic conflict between us and God be resolved? How will he make things right? How will he make our relationships right, our marriages? How will he bring us back to the place that we're homesick for? And this next passage in Hebrews shows us how. Let's take a look. Hebrews 10, verse 5. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, It might seem like we're jumping tracks here, talking about peace and shalom and the garden and then moving in towards sacrifices and offerings, but but we're not. Let me, hang on just a minute, I'll show you why. Because throughout history, if we're honest, God's people have been terrible at living according to his ways. Like, big time failures. And it's sad, this is a sad thing because God's way of living is the best way to live. It's the only way to experience shalom, to this peace. And God proves us through this. In the garden, he says, don't eat this tree or shalom will be gone, right? But instead of listening to God and his ways, Adam and Eve choose to live life according to their own ways. And what this ultimately leads to is destruction, Disaster. Now, when, when people rebel against God, when, when God tells us to do some, live life one way and we choose to do it another way, when we choose to live our own way, the Bible calls this sin. And we, everyone in this room, right here, right now, we are just as guilty of this as Adam and Eve. Where we constantly are trying to be our own little gods, telling, us, telling ourselves how to live our life, how to spend our money, how to love one another, what, how to use my home. We're the ones who decides what's best for us, but in doing so, we rebel against God's ways. And failing to live according to God's ways always leads to the destruction of shalom. And at the core of this destruction of shalom is this lack of peace with God. And it's not a passive thing, like where God and I can be in opposite ends of the room and it's like, I won't bother him if he won't bother me. But this lack of peace with God is an aggressive thing where we're actively being enemies of God. We're declaring war on God. Because we sin, Colossians 1.21 says that we are alienated from God and hostile towards him. This is the state that we're in. This is the reality of the lack of peace, of shalom, as we live life our own way instead of according to God's ways. Yet, while God's people are sinners and are at war with God, he makes a way for them to experience peace because God doesn't desire us to be his enemy. That's not what he wants. God wants us to be his people, his beloved people people that he cherishes. 
And so what God did is he created the sacrificial system that through a variety of different offerings and sacrifices, people could be reconciled to God, that people could be made right, that they could find this peace that they're looking for. Now, these offerings and sacrifices wasn't just a matter of dropping some coins in a bucket and being okay with God. Blood had to be shed. A life had to be taken because the penalty for not living according to God's ways is death. That's what God said in the garden. Do not eat of this, for surely you will die. And so what would happen, God allowed animals to function as a substitute for sinful men and women. So instead of men and women dying and experiencing death for their sins, animals would be slain, that they would put on an altar and sacrifice to God. Now we even see this back in the garden, that when Adam and Eve sinned against God and were kicked out of the garden, what God did is he took an animal and he killed it, and he took that animal's skins and he gave it to Adam and Eve so they could cover up. Right, so they could find peace, that they could have that temporary peace and be reconciled to God. But there's a problem with the sacrificial system. That animals, it was impossible for them to permanently take away sin. Because as soon as you sinned, you'd have to give another offering. And once you, you had given that offering, once you sinned again, you'd have to give another offering. So constantly, day in, day out, sacrifices had to be made in order for God's people to find peace with God. And so it's through the sacrificial system that God is working so that his people can have peace. But if it's Jesus that, it, that is our peace, if it's he's the one who becomes our peace, then how is it that Jesus restores us to God? How does he bring us home? And the answer is simple, and it's, it's in verse, uh, it's in 7, 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews that Jesus becomes the sacrifice, that Jesus himself replaces the animal who's in our place. Romans 3.25 says that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice that accomplished forever what the other animal sacrifices could only do momentarily, which is to bring us peace with God forever. In verse 9 in this Hebrews passage actually tells us that the old sacrificial system, that the need to sacrifice animals is done away with forever. Now the only way for God's people to find peace or, or any people to find peace with God it's through Jesus' once and for all sacrifice. But the question is this, how is Jesus sufficient to be our sacrifice, to be the one who takes our place? It's this, that Jesus always lived according to God's ways. Not once did he depart from God's ways of living. In the places where you and I fail, Jesus was successful. He was always faithful to God. Jesus is the second Adam who comes, who lives according to God's ways, and by doing so, always maintains peace with God. And so it is by his once 
and for all sacrifice that Jesus restores us back into a right relationship with God. Jesus' perfect obedience gets counted as our own when we put our faith in him. And this gives us peace with God. But not only does, does Jesus give us his faithfulness, his, his righteousness, but our, all the things that we, all the places where we would depart from God and live life according to our own way, the punishment for that gets placed upon Jesus. It's through Jesus, that's the only way that we can find peace. You can't go out and try to be a better person. You can't hit the reset button on your life and say, well, I've messed up a few times in the past. Maybe I can do it right from here on out. It's impossible. There's no 10 steps to peace. The only way for you to have peace is to have Christ's righteousness through faith. But what Jesus does is far more than giving us inner peace. That's a big thing. He does give us this inner peace of knowing that we're loved and we're cherished and that we're made God's people, that we're counted as righteous. But Jesus is also working to restore and renew all of creation back to the way it was in the garden. If you look at the book of Revelation, you see that Jesus will come back and do everything that Micah and Isaiah prophesied. He will restore and renew the earth. All of our relationships will be restored. All of creation, we will be forever made right with God. Everything will live in shalom. We'll finally return to the place where we were meant to live. We'll finally be home. Now, if, if you haven't embraced Jesus by faith yet, I want you to see why this is so important, that if, if you want to find inner peace, if you want to live in a world where it's completely peaceful, where shalom is a reality, that this is the only way to peace, that Jesus is the only way to find peace, where he makes you right with God, He's at work renewing all things back to the way they were meant to be. And for those of us who do believe that Jesus will finish what he started, we know how the story ends. We know that one day we will be back in the garden with God, living in perfect shalom forever. And while we eagerly look forward to that day when perfect shalom is our reality, We are confident right here and right now that in the midst of all the chaos that surrounds us, we have peace with God because Christ has become our peace. And as we have that peace, God commissions us to be peace bearers, to carry peace with us, to be people of peace. And we go into our workplaces, we live in our home, we live in our neighborhoods, the gym, wherever we go, we carry this peace with us, knowing that God, through Christ, has made a way for us to have peace. This is the peace that your neighbors are longing for, to know that they're at peace with God, the the inner peace, the inner turmoil, the, the, the need for them to feel loved and accepted. The only place they'll find it is in Jesus, and Jesus is making all things new because Jesus is our peace. Let's pray.
<clears throat> Father, we, we acknowledge that we are peace disruptors, that we are incapable of maintaining and keeping shalom in ourselves, that time and time again we destroy it, we, we call you to war because of our sinful actions. And God, we don't want to be at war with you because we know it will not end well for us. We desire peace. We long for it. We want to live in a world where everything is made right, where we are restored back to unity and security of relationship to you. And so we thank you that you've provided a way for us in that through Christ, that he has become our peace. And by, by um, taking your wrath on the cross, by becoming the lamb who was slain on our behalf so that we might live in shalom forevermore. We give you thanks and praise, Lord. And we ask that as we are sent out from here today that we would be a peaceful presence in this world of chaos. Help us to rest in the peace that you offer us internally, but we also see that internal peace become manifest around us where we forgive one another and are reconciled to our brothers and sisters, where, where we can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, and that we can know and rest and marinate in this truth that Jesus has come and brought us peace and he has left us with peace, that he is our peace. And it's in his name we pray, amen.